You're listening to Accents on WUKY. I'm your host, Katerina Stoikova, and with me today is writer Tony Ann Johnson. Hi, Tony Ann. Hi, thanks for having me, Katerina. It's great to see you. Great to spend time with you and to have an opportunity to ask you questions about light skin gone to waste. It is um, a collection of linked short stories. I have to tell you, Tonyan, that I was blown away by the stories, even though I knew what to expect in terms of voice and characters. Um, please tell our listeners about the book. Uh, well, it's um, it's autobiographical fiction. Um, all the stories are are based on some real events, so they're fictionalized, but most of the major events in the stories actually did happen. Um, and it's linked also to the book you published, Homegoing. So Homegoing takes place in 2006. These stories take place from 1962 until the late 70s. And the stories start with the character based on my father, Phil Arrington, who's a psychologist and psychoanalyst, African-American uh, rents a house in a 99% white community. And as it turns out, they are not welcome. And the stories progress through the years. Uh, he and his wife, Velma, stay. They they have a daughter, Maddie. Phil has a stepdaughter from a previous marriage, um, Livia. And Livia lives with her mother in the Bronx, but she comes to Monroe on the weekends. And um, Maddie grows up there. So Maddie's experience um, is kind of different from everybody else because she's never experienced anything else. So she's only lived there. She hasn't, like Phil and Velma, had an, a, the ability to establish her identity outside of this place where she's really not accepted. So Phil and Velma have grown up in African-American communities where they have been embraced and accepted. They did not want to stay there, but Maddie only has lived in this community. And then simultaneously, Phil and Velma's marriage just gets worse and worse. <laughs> As the stories progress, they, they're just imploding. And Phil has a proclivity for white women, and he cheats on Velma. And that enrages her and she's also they're both kind of on the narcissistic spectrum but Velma is a, a bit more of a virulent narcissist like physically abusive emotionally abusive um, I think Phil is emotionally abusive to Velma but he's not as mean to Maddie um, so that's kind of the world of the stories and and we we see Maddie sort of trying to gain social status like she wants to have a boyfriend but that's very difficult for her and even when she gets close she kind of feels like it's ultimately not going to work so why even try um so she kind of through as the stories progress she's hoping to find her way out of of that town she doesn't want to stay phil and velma do stay they both stay even even as the marriage ends they they will stay in monroe one thing I was really impressed with is that the craft and the control and the range, I guess these are three things. <laughs> um, 
you were able to make me stop reading so I can laugh so hard that like I haven't laughed in years and several pages later I'll have my heart broken for the main character that means so much to me I I, I'm so grateful that you absorbed it in that way and that it, it moved you and and gave you an emotional experience of course like that's something that I want but you never know <laughs> you never know if things are going to translate or not so I'm glad that it did for you light skin gone to waste showed me perspective that I have never had an opportunity to consider and um experiences that I haven't had myself but they were written so well again with such craft and control and range that I fell in love with Maddie and her world and I deeply cared about everything that happened to her I'm so glad thank you did you um did you feel a connection between the Phil and Velma in Light Skin Gone to Waste and the Phil and Velma in Homegoing? Like, did you recognize those personalities or, or were they different from what you would have thought? I was happy to see Phil and Velma in love. That was brief, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. I mean, like, without having seen that connection, then you experience less of a loss when you see it broken later on. So I was happy to see the the family together. And it was wonderful to read about the family traveling and experiencing the world together, you know, with all the positive things that add to one's culture and worldview, as well as the tragedies that occur Sometimes when we're not as protected as we believe we are or we should be by uh, those who love us, right? Yeah. So uh, this Without book... giving anything away, there's a tragedy in that, in that one story. Yeah, people need to pick up this book and read it. <laughs> this book was picked up by Roxanne Gay for the winner of the Flannery O'Connor uh, award for short fiction. My question is, what were you doing when you found out that you won the Flannery O'Connor Award? <laughs> <laughs> I was in front of my computer as I am now, and I was on a writing break. I, I belong to um, a group of women writers, um, uh, Blackbird Collective, and we meet on Zoom from like 11 to 3 typically. Um, this was during during the pandemic uh, we started meeting um every day and so I was just on a break and I read this email and I was so excited I totally did not expect it and I screamed and I was jumping up and down and I was just so thrilled but I was right in the exact spot I'm in now like on this computer in this room working (laughs) so yeah it was it was a really great feeling (laughs) it was a wonderful feeling because I you know as a writer you receive so many rejections and so I almost expect everything to be a rejection. I don't typically expect to get a yes and to get a yes that big, um, that that felt really big to me. And there's a couple of people that I know in my 
LA literary circle who have won the award and I admire both of them so much. It's um, Dana Johnson, who was one of my mentors at Antioch and then Colette Sartor, whose book Once Removed won not that long ago, I think 2018. And I thought it was so good. And and I admire both uh, Colette and Dana so much. So to be in that company was amazing. And to, and to have be chosen by Roxanne Gay, because I admire her too. <laughs> well, I was going to say ask about her because she became the editor of the book, right? Yes. Yeah, what yeah. was it like to work with Roxanne Gay? It was unlike any experience that I've had before, I think, because I was a little bit afraid um, to not take a note. <laughs> so... I think in the past, you know, so when you and I worked together, I probably took all your notes because you didn't really have that many. They were mostly like minor changes. They weren't like big, they weren't anything that was going to take that long to do or major change. And, um, and I have dealt with editors making changes on stories that were being published in literary journals, but and then on my first book, I, I did deal with some changes and I was at a, I was a different writer. I was a different at a different place in my career on that first book. So I was very much open to the changes because I just wanted to get the book published. By the time I was working with Roxanne Gay, you know, I'm I'm older. I've been doing this for a longer time and I'm a little bit more protective of what I've created. And so there were some things that she asked me to do that she really didn't like that I just didn't agree with. But I was like, it's Roxanne Gay. Like, how am I going to say no to Roxanne Gay? So I just just quietly didn't do them. But the notes that she gave me that I agreed with that I did take and that were difficult to address but I did I'm glad that I did because I I wholeheartedly believe she make she made the manuscript better she pushed me she asked questions she refused to accept you know so there were a couple of there were a couple of parts in in a few different stories that she said I'm just not buying this and you need to convince me you need to make me believe that this would actually happen. And so I had to work harder and, and I did that and it was hard, but I did it. And then in one story, I kind of wrapped the ending up in a very neat bow and it was sort of, it was too easy. And she said, no, 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 this isn't done. Like you, you have, you have more work to do here. And that, this, that particular story was wings made of rocks. And it was the last scene in the book. And it was so hard, but I'm so glad that she gave me that note and that she pushed me. And I, I still like didn't even feel like it was done when I delivered it. I was on a tight deadline that I couldn't miss because if I missed the deadline, my book would be pushed like who knows when. And I didn't want that to happen. So I was like, I just have to hand it in. So I did the best I could and I finished it. And um, I'm not even sure she had an opportunity to read it before it went to copy editing. But I do think it was a much better story after having addressed her note. And so, you know, I did some of the notes. I didn't do some of the notes. Um, Would you like to read a little bit from that book for our listeners? I'll read a short piece from the story um, Light Skin Gone to Waste. So this um, this story, Light Skin Gone to Waste, is from Maddie's point of view. Um, and Maddie has uh, recently in this story, she has 
um, cut her hair very, very short. She's previously like never had a, long, a haircut. Her hair's just been long and she's tried to make it uh, straight to fit in. You know, she doesn't have any black friends, really. Everybody's white and they all have straight, lovely hair and she wants to look like them. And if she blow dries her hair, she can kind of look like them, but not really. So she ends up getting frustrated with that and cut her hair. Um, let me see where I'm going to start. Well, I'll start here. I'm glad I don't have long hair anymore, Maddie said. I blew dry the crap out of it trying to get those wings, burn my scalp and my forehead too with that evil curling iron. Julia looked back, scrunching her face, but you're pretty. Maddie didn't know what that had to do with it. She didn't ask. They tromped down a flight of stairs into the basement. Her eyes were wrapped by Julia's hair, the way it flowed over her bare shoulders and glided across her back. Man. When school ended a couple of weeks earlier, Maddie decided to have all her so-called good hair cut off. Good? Her mother called it good, and so did her cousin Susie, but Maddie's hair wasn't flowing all down her back, shiny and smooth like Julia's. Susie had nappy hair. She had to have those naps pressed every two weeks since she was a toddler. Don't cut it, she warned Maddie. No guys are going to like you. Just keep your hair in a long ponytail. What did it matter? No guys in Monroe liked her anyway. Not even Zeke Odom, the cute new black guy in town whose attention Maddie had tried and failed to get. She was sick of trying to make her hair look like the girls in Monroe, and her mother was sick of hearing her complain that it didn't. Velma drove Maddie 50 miles all the way down to her childhood hairdresser in Harlem, fussing the whole time about how she didn't want to hear it if Maddie didn't like it. It's your decision, and I'm not going to be responsible, Velma said. Maddie got it cut into a curly afro. She thought it looked good. They came home and her father hated it. He took her back into the city, not to his old neighborhood in the Bronx, though. No, they went to Manhattan, to the salon at Henri Bendel's, where a snooty stylist shook his head at her ghetto cut, recut it, and charged three times what her mom's hairdresser had. Maddie's hair was so short now, you could barely tell if it was curly or nappy. Among Black people, this was not considered a good thing. Yesterday, when Aunt Syl, Susie's mom, saw Maddie, she stared at her head and went, sucking her teeth in that Jamaican way of hers. Yeah, she said, you have barely a touch of the towel brush, but now your light skin's gone to waste. I think that's fabulous. Probably don't need to tell our listeners that you also are an actress. Oh, <laughs> that's kind of you. <laughs> I I was. This is like I really only get to act, you know, when I read from my books. But I, I do enjoy doing that. It allows. It gives me an opportunity to use that training. And you did do an audio book, right? I did. I did the narration for all the books for Homegoing, for my first book, and for this book. Yeah. What was the experience? It was so great, Katerina. So the first two books, I produced the audiobooks myself. And I I hired um somebody to do the editing. He was in New York, I was here in LA, and I bought a microphone and I recorded. The first book I didn't even have a microphone. I just used my iPhone, but I basically plugged a microphone into my iPhone for home going and recorded little passages and then emailed them to the editor in New York and he edited it and eventually we got the book accepted to Audible. You kind of have to go through quality control and there were there were technical things but finally we 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 passed the test and we got it on Audible. Um this book Light Skin Gone to Waste 
UGA Press sold the audiobook rights to an audiobook producer. And so I didn't have to do it myself. And so for this book, I actually went to a professional studio and recorded everything with an engineer right there. So every time I made a mistake, like he would catch it and we would do it over. And um, it was a great setup. It was very pleasant. It was very, so much more pleasant than doing it in my closet. Cause I would like be in my closet with the door closed, no air conditioning in there, like cramped my shoes, like under my feet, clothes all around me, like sweltering in the closet. So it felt like a luxury to be able to have um, an actual studio and with a professional engineer with me at the time. So it was great. I loved it. Uh, and you were also nominated for NWACP award twice, in fact. Yes, Thank you. Yeah, that was that was gratifying. I I applied for a number of awards um, and didn't get you know any recognition in so many. So. Getting recognized by the NAACP um, was really nice and gratifying. I appreciated that a lot. And what about these characters? Should we expect to read more about Maddie and her family and other books of yours? I hope so. I have finished another manuscript. It's called But Where's Home? And uh, Phil, Velma, Maddie, Livia, um, and Grandma Emily... And uh, the Megnas. So remember in Homegoing where they talk about Le- Lisa Megna is is in that story. And um, Do- I think the mother's name was uh, Iris dies. And that's the funeral that they're going to. Well, there's a story from the Megnas point of view that's that opens the book. And it's that it's that family's point of view. It, it's a it's a third person plural story. So it's the couple basically. And they're reactions to the Arringtons coming into the neighborhood. They they move next door to them. Um, so there's the Megnas. This, this new collection has more stories from Maddie's sister's point of view, Livia. And Maddie has one story that is ba- almost present day, takes place like in 2022, but then is looking back at an event that happened in, in 1971. And then the last story, as the book exists now that this may change, but the last story is, is a novella called But Where's Home? And it takes place Maddie's first semester of college at NYU. And the week that she moves out, Phil and Velma finally separate. And it's very um, tumultuous. There's a lot of fighting physically, um, you know, verbally. It's like, it's insane, but it's all based on real stuff. Um, So as insane as it seems, and even I think it seems insane, um, I actually did live through some of that insanity and experienced it myself. So um, it's, it's kind of an, an intense, it's an intense story. Because Phil is very um, frustrated, you know, at that time in New York State, you couldn't just get a divorce because you wanted to. It it wasn't easy. There, there was no no-fault divorce. You had to prove that the other person violated the marital contract, and Velma refused <laughs> to give him a divorce. And so he punishes her for that and is horrible to her, but Maddie's in the middle. So yeah. she is punished too. Um, and it's just, 
crazy. <laughs> oh, I cannot wait to read those stories. <laughs> if you thought Velma was crazy in the in the last book, she really loses it in that story. She totally goes bananas. What has the reception been for light skin gone to waste and home going? What has the reception been towards those characters by your readers? Well, I mean, it, I think it's hard. It's hard to say because nobody's going to come up to me and say, I hated the book. So, you know, I only hear mostly all good comments. Um, so the reception from, you know, my experience has, has been positive and, you know, the, the reviews were positive. Um, and, you know, just some of the, the NAACP award recognition. So that was positive. So I think people are absorbing light skin gone to waste in a positive way. And I still hear um, people talk about home going as well, even though that came out in 2021. Readers are still finding it now. Recently, um, there was some activity at Pasadena City College where I was writer in residence. And so students there read it and, and a couple of teachers. And so that they were very positive. There was, in fact, a student who talked to me about just difficult parent-child relationships and dealing with a narcissistic parent. And he found the book really helpful in, in that regard, just like kind of seeing something that resembled an experience that he was familiar with. So I, I think it's been, you know, it's been really positive. Um, Light Skin Gone to Waste did sell out its original printing. So all the books that they that they published, that they printed, um, they all were gone and they had to then go to print on demand. So that was nice. You know, they weren't stuck with a bunch of books that were warehoused. Um, and so that was good and was a good sign. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, I... I I, I think it's been good. I wish that it was, you know, more financially beneficial. Like it's really not that easy to make money on a on a smaller press book because they don't print that many. So there's not like the, the sales reach isn't that large. They don't spend much money for promotion. So I had to do the promotion myself and that costs money. So that's money out of my pocket. Then, you know, they only pay a small percentage per book, 7% of the, of the list price. And then the agent takes 15% of that 7%. And so they make, you know, this much money of like a big pile of money. And I make a little itty bitty bit of that. And granted, I did not do this for the money. But when I saw how the numbers worked out, I can't say that I wasn't disappointed. So I really, I really am hopeful that before I finish my writing career that I at some point <laughs> sell a book that um, that pays, you know, something worthwhile, um, because it's it's just really not a lucrative um, endeavor for me. Um, and that's okay. I mean, I, I am still gratified by just reaching readers and, um, and I love doing the readings and I love being interviewed and doing, you know, talking about the book. I, I love the whole experience. Um, but my royalty check was disappointing. <laughs> so. I have read your bio. You pretty much every line is winner of this, winner of that, winner of the third. Your, <laughs> you are an award winning author 
anything that you put your mind to, um, you do excellently. So I have no doubt that a really excellent press will pick up your next book. And I wish that for you with all my heart. Thank you for that faith in me. I appreciate it. Of course, I I don't put my failures in my bio. I only put the wins. Wouldn't it be an interesting bio, though? Maybe that will be, hmm, that sounds like a really excellent writing prompt. So let's (laughs) give that as an assignment to our listeners. Talk about your losses. (laughs) Well, to write a bio that's uh, like a poem or a story that Mm -hmm. lists the things that you tried and you didn't succeed to your expectations I think that could be quite poignant so maybe tomorrow morning when I don't have any, <laughs> don't know what to write about this is going to be my writing prompt I belong to this literary organization um, called women who submit and every every month we have a, a rejection brag and so we when we get rejected from somewhere we share it on our Facebook page um, and it's, you know, we, we all get rejected. Like it's just part of, you know, it's a numbers game. So uh, for the first several months that they did it, I never posted. I never wanted to admit the rejections that I have, but then I got over that and I just started sharing them. And there is something kind of liberating about just being honest about, yeah, like, you know, I got rejected here, 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 you know. Um, and then it, you know, if you're, if you're not afraid to share it, then it, it sort of loses its power. And I have one last question for you. And that is a question that I ask all my guests who teach creative writing. What is the most important thing you teach your students? If there is one thing you want them to remember from your class or workshop, what is it? Oh, well, you know, I'm not teaching anymore in a classroom, but um, I mentioned this, I think, uh, a few years ago when you interviewed me, and it was the three questions. And they and they come from the visual artist, Charles White, who used to ask his students this at the beginning of every semester. And it's, where do you come from? Why are you creating the work you're creating? And how do you know who you are? And over time, when you've, once you've got a body of work, you will start to see that you have been answering those questions in your work, because inevitably that comes through, even if you're not conscious of it, there's something unique to your experience that's finding its way into the stuff you write. And you, you may not even be aware of it at the time. And I know I wasn't like I looked, I didn't receive these questions until a couple of years ago. And so I had, you know, 20 years of work. And I could see that may okay, that makes perfect sense. That's why I did that. That's why I chose to, you know, use those two characters and what they represent. It just made so much sense. It's, it's all coming from what's intrinsic to my own experience, you know. Thank you so much, Tonya. Best of luck with your writing and publishing. Thank you. It was so good to see you. I hope I get to see you in person sometime.